At the moment of crisis, of the greatest trauma of Jim's life, when the gold medals were taken away from him, Pop Warner lied about it to save his own reputation. I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co-workers. He's the boss, and we're married. And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I are going to catch up, talk a little bit about the the current events going on in the world. And then later on in the pod, we sat down with an incredible author. David Marinus has just written this wonderful biography about the great athlete Jim Thorpe. It's entitled Path Lit by Lightning. It's going to be a great pod, so stay tuned. Hello there, Missy. Are you World Cupped out? My teams are gone. Oh, wah, wah, wah. I'm very sad. And what teams are those? Croatia <laughs> and Morocco. Oh, man. I was so inspired by the Moroccan team. I mean, they, I even in their loss to France this week, I mean, they played really, really well. They were just, they were just, I, I love them. Okay, we said we weren't going to talk World Cup because we figured the majority of our audience is not into this. Okay, so so last thing about the World Cup. Okay. The final. Argentina versus France. Who you got? I want Argentina over France. Why? I don't know. Because of the hoops, their jerseys? No, I actually don't like their jerseys. (laughs) Okay. And that's typically how I pick a team. But Uh, no, I'd actually, I think because of Messi, I guess. I don't know. Just And it's also just. It's his his last World Cup. It'd be nice for him to go out. I'm just going to root for Argentina. Okay. All right, good. All right, moving on. I don't have a dream grievance this week. Okay, good. But this, and I know hearing about people's dreams is kind of equivalent to having to look at vacation photos. <laughs> However. Oh, the, the listeners have psychoanalyzed us. Oh, I mean, they're <laughs> Me. going to just, no, I know, I know they know I'm crazy by now. But, okay, so I was coming to the pod today. I was so excited. I was going to have a great story to tell. Mm-hmm. And then I woke up and realized it was a dream, and I was so upset. Oh, my gosh. Well, maybe we need to start recording while you're sleeping. I mean, I, I, no, I'm not, like, in my dream, oh, I was oh. having the dream, and I remember thinking, oh, man, this is going to be great for the pod opening. And then I woke up, I was like, dang it. Anyways, oh, so that goodness. was fun. Oh, but actually, gosh. do you want me to tell I know you're dying. To I am so was, dying. Please okay. tell us. Okay, I'll tell you. So we were sitting in church listening to, there was like a choir performance, which, you know, it's Christmas time. So sure. lots of things like that going on. And there was a woman in the choir loft smoking a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> and then not only that, but she accidentally in her like exuberance for singing, lit her wig on fire. <laughs> Now, most of our audience is not going to know this reference. That sounds a lot like Tuna, Texas. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, gosh. That's, wow. Yeah, gosh, right? That was such a good show. Such a great play. Such I don't a great, think it's touring anymore. No, I don't think so. Well, I think one of the uh, the originators uh, actually died, unfortunately. Oh, no. That's too but, bad. Uh, but, yeah. That, Man, that was a, you're right. That was a great stage show. Sig hanging low, singing hymns. Yeah, yeah. It was really funny. Anyways, but, but the, it, the funny thing was just the disappointment when I woke up and realized yeah. that this woman had not 
in fact, set her hair on fire yeah. with a cigarette. Man, so. that would have been a great, yeah. great story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad we couldn't tell it. <laughs> right. So last week I promised that I did have another um, grievance to share, though. Okay, well. I have an office grievance. Oh, Someone no. is committing just a horrible co-worker foul in the break room that we need to talk about. And I'm not accusing... Is this appropriate for the pod? <laughs> yes, actually. And I realize I'm about to open up a whole can of worms. Yes. I'm not pointing any fingers. <laughs> but to the person in the office who has now taken to leaving bowls with scrapes of peanut butter <laughs> on them in the sink... Okay, guilty, guilty, guilty. Yeah, oh. that's a bit much, man. Well, I mean, when okay, I Okay, well, I have, since uh, our adult son has come home, he's got me back into eating apples. He loves apples, obviously, and so okay. I've been buying apples at the grocery store. Oh. And I love peanut butter, and I thought, here's a good idea. Let's dip oh. my apples into peanut butter. That's what I've been I doing. I thought you were eating bowls of peanut, <laughs> peanut butter. butter. <laughs> I was just like, oh my gosh, am I not feeding you enough? I don't know. But um, every time I've gone to like load a dog, the dishwasher, I just lick, just I lick the bowl. Like, What's up with this? <laughs> so I keep going to load the dishwasher and I'm just going to scrub out like peanut butter remnant out of the bowls. And so I... So, anyway, I apologize. Office foul because, as, as you guys know, our kitchen serves as our office break room. So, yeah. Well, I will start cleaning up my mess. I appreciate uh, that. You know, I appreciate you also not leaving a nasty note uh, on oh, the Oh, that cabinet. comes next. <laughs> that comes next. There will be there will be uh, post-it notes around the, the uh, break room okay. for Great. not leaving your leftovers in the refrigerator for too long. Well, if there is a post-it note, I will else's. take a photo and I will post it. <laughs> It, okay, you've seen my post-it notes. Yeah, we meant to blur out some of the language <laughs> and some of the photo or the the sketches you make. That's right. That's right. No, remember during COVID when um both of the boys were home. So you know you have adult kids home. We we're all kind of. I mean, when in during the height of quarantine, where nobody could go anywhere, so everybody was eating every meal at this house. Do you remember this? Oh yeah, yeah. And I had to. I was forced to put a sign above the sink, yes, basically, to take care of your dishes, and yeah. it didn't have nice. It was a meme, but the language wasn't yeah, it was not yeah family friendly but no, it was not i thought it was but hilarious it, it made your point <laughs> everybody else got super offended but i thought it was funny so, anyways, uh, well there's one thing i want to talk about before we go to the interview uh with uh, david marinus and right before or right after we recorded last week's opening for the pod the news broke that President Biden and his administration had negotiated the release of Brittany Griner uh, from uh, from prison in Russia. Yeah, and I I realize I admit that that we may not be we may not, we may be we may not be the source for breaking news, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and for our listeners, but it w- was literally right after we recorded that that news broke, and and I kind of felt like bad that we hadn't even mentioned it, but we just, we did not know yet. So it is something that we should touch on. And now that we've had a few days to kind of see the, the commentary and, and, you know, heard more about her homecoming, it's definitely worth, worth talking about. And I'm very nervous to even broach it because I don't, I know that this situation is complex and I've never negotiated a deal right. like this. And I know it's, it's complicated, 
But the backlash yeah. that we're seeing in the media and uh, in, in online is really what's surprising for me, to what me. Was, yeah, for me, what was interesting was that there was a lot of criticism on the front end before she was released, that there was not a, enough attention being brought to this case and that people weren't speaking out loud enough, the Biden administration wasn't doing enough. And then when the deal got done, then, of course, the other side filled that uh, that. Uh, vacancy and started criticizing the Biden administration for making the deal. And so what was interesting, we've got friends, you know, quasi adjacent to, to, you know, security world. And, you know, one of the things they kept telling us is that the federal government, it doesn't matter who is in office. The federal government of the United States is constantly working towards freeing uh, Americans who are unjustly kept in foreign prisons. And especially in Russia, and so we knew we knew that they were working to try to get Brittany out. Um, you know, she. I mean, the crime was simply having uh, cannabis cart- cartridges in a vape, um, and so she got sentenced to years in prison because of that. Uh, also, what we know is that Russia is becoming more and more anti-LGBTQ uh, in their policies and in their laws. Brittany is an open gay woman. She has a wife. Um, and so a lot of things at play there. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the government worked, made this deal. A lot of people are saying it was unfair because uh, of who Russia got in return. Um, and it was Victor Boot, who was an arms dealer. But at the same time, you look at the end of the day, and we've got an American released from prison. Yes, we've got others in prison, especially in Russia, like Paul Whelan. He's been accused of being a spy, and every administration from Trump to Biden has denied that and are fighting for his release. Uh, And so the, the political gamesmanship after something like this happened is really discouraging, because I really want to believe in the best of the best in those people who are trying to negotiate the release of these captives. And they're doing it the best of their ability. And when we get an American out, we should celebrate it and then go right back to work to get another one out. I agree. I agree. I was really, um, I, like I said, I was just, I was very surprised at the commentary and, and the backlash. I don't pretend to know the complexities of the case, but like you said, we cross paths with enough people who are the behind the scenes people that you never know their name. You're never going to know what they do, who talk about stories like this and, and trying to negotiate or trying to create deals and trying to do things security wise that, that these are very, very hardworking and very knowledgeable experts in, in doing these types of things. And then it all just gets used for political fodder. Yeah. So. And the rhetoric, the, the hateful and, vitriol rhetoric that comes after it is not productive. It does not help Paul Whelan sitting in a Russian jail. It only agitates the Russians. It only uh, emboldens them to keep him there. Uh, It's just not productive. So kudos to the Biden administration, kudos to any administration that gets an American out uh, who is unjustly imprisoned and falsely imprisoned around the world. So we celebrate uh, Brittany's release. So uh, hope for more. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we got to sit down with a wonderful author, also a Washington Post uh, columnist, uh, David Marinus. His latest book is about the great Jim Thorpe. 
uh, who was a hero of mine growing up here in eastern Oklahoma, even though he lived way before I did. Uh, but uh, yeah, you made me read another sports book. <laughs> I did. I did. Method to my madness. Yeah, yeah. It was very good, though. Yeah, so. I really enjoyed it. So stay tuned as Missy and I sit down with David Marinus and talk about his book, Path Lit by Lightning. Hey, listeners, check us out online at goodfaithmedia.org and follow us on social at gfmedia.org. We'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. I'm new here and could really use the feedback, but only if it's glowing. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us. David Marinus is a New York Times bestselling author and associate editor at The Washington Post. He is a three-time Pulitzer Prize finalist and won the Pulitzer for national reporting for his 1992 coverage of then-presidential candidate Bill Clinton. David was also part of The Washington Post team that won a Pulitzer for their 2007 coverage of the Virginia Tech shooting. His writing has won several other notable awards, including the George Polk Award, Robert F. Kennedy Book Award, Anthony Lucas Book Prize, and Frankfurt eBook Award. He currently lives in Washington, D.C. and Madison, Wisconsin, with his wife, Linda. David's latest book, Path Lit by Lightning, details the life and career of Jim Thorpe, Sack and Fox citizen, track and field Olympian, football phenom, professional baseball player, and some say the greatest athlete ever to walk the planet. David, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thank you, Mitch and Missy. Happy to be with you. Thank you. So, David, let's get started by talking. Um, your previous books covered sports icons, Roberto Clemente. Uh, did I say that right? You did. Very nice. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Vince Lombardi, uh, political figures such as President Clinton and Obama, as well as your father. So for those of us who did not grow up uh, familiar with Jim Thorpe, as I shared with you earlier, just briefly tell us a little bit about him and what drew you to writing about him. Well, as Mitch said, um, some consider Jim Thorpe the greatest athlete in American history. Um, it's really hard, Missy, to compare athletes from different generations because of differences in training and diet and equipment and so on. But Jim Thorpe did things that no athlete has did, did before or has done since. The trifecta of being an All-American football player, the first great professional football player, the first president of what became the National Football League, a gold medalist in the decathlon and pentathlon, and a major league baseball player. No one has done that before. I mean, he was just good at everything. He was also a great ballroom dancer, ice skater. He was even good at marbles. Um, <laughs> but the truth is, that's not the reason I wrote the book. Um, for my other sports biographies of Lombardi and Clemente, um, as with Thorpe, I was looking for a way to use the drama and action of sports to illuminate American history and sociology. So for Lombardi, it was not just about a great football coach, but about the mythology of competition and success in American life, what it takes and what it costs. For Clemente, not just a beautiful baseball player, but a way to write about someone, you know, so many sports figures are called heroes, but very few really are. Mm -hmm. Clemente was. You know, his motto was, if you have a chance to help others and fail to do so, you're wasting your time on this earth. Uh, he died living out that motto, um, trying to deliver humanitarian aid to Nicaragua after an earthquake. So Jim Thorpe, 
not just that unparalleled athlete, but also the opportunity for me to write about the Native American experience through his life. And that's why I did the book. Yeah. Well, I am so glad that uh, you were drawn to Jim Thorpe. He's one of my heroes. As we were talking about uh-huh. prior to uh, starting the interview, I grew up in eastern Oklahoma. I'm a citizen of the Muscogee Creek Nation. And so Jim Thorpe was a big part of my growing up and my childhood, just talking about how great an athlete he was. My great-grandfather actually played in the Indian Baseball Leagues in eastern Oklahoma. So all of this, Whoa. yeah, all of this was just remarkable to me. So I really appreciate you. I wonder book. if he played against Jim and the Harjo Indians. Yeah, very Golden well could. Uh, very well could. We knew the Harjo family. Yeah. So, uh, uh-huh. yeah, so at uh-huh. any rate, I mean, I, I really appreciate not only you celebrating Jim's career and his la- athleticism, but also the story, uh, the, the parallel story that made him who he was being an indigenous person. So let's talk about Jim's early life. Uh, He and his twin brother, Charlie, were born on May 22nd, 1887, on the Sac and Fox Reservation here in Oklahoma. Charlie died of typhoid when the boys were nine years old. How do you think the death of his twin brother affected Jim throughout his life? Mitch, I think it was the first loss of many losses that Jim Thorpe suffered during his life. And probably one of the most profound. I mean, I don't have a twin, but you can only imagine how close twins are. And he certainly was that close to Charlie. Um, the death at age nine was when a, a disease swept through one of the Indian boarding schools. And those boarding schools are a central part of the history of indigenous peoples in this country. You know, for the most part, a sad part of that history. But I think that losing Charlie... Um, you know, we'll talk about many of the other losses he had in his life, starting with the loss of Sac and Fox land, as with Muscogee and Creek land and all in the land of, of all of the various tribes from Oklahoma, um, in that right around the time that Jim Thorpe was born, through the death of his good brother, then later the death of his uh, namesake son, um, orphaned, he was orphaned at age 16, he lost his gold medals. So I think that was the first really traumatic experience of Jim Thorpe's life, losing his twin brother, Charlie. Absolutely. So one of the things you mentioned or you alluded to a moment ago uh, in writing this book was it giving you an opportunity to discuss the experience of Native American peoples in this country, which I truly appreciated and really enjoyed learning um, that that uh, portion of history through his eyes. Um, but one significant um you know, part and, and aspect of Jim's life was the time he spent at the Indian boarding school and in that system yes. um, from faith-based schools like the one near Stroud, Oklahoma and Carlisle Indian industrial school in Pennsylvania. The strategic philosophy of all of them followed the Pratt doctrine, which was in order to save the man, you must kill the Indian. How did the schools and the Pratt doctrine shape Jim's life and career throughout his life? You know, Missy, the, the whole notion of, kill the Indian, save the man, um, was one of those philosophies that had unintended consequences. The people who espoused that thought they were doing good, you know, which happens so often in, in human history. Um, so they thought that after the, the uh, near genocide of the mid-19th century, um, where Indians were literally killed, right, that this was the way to save 
the indigenous peoples by turning them into white people. So, you know, Jim Thorpe was one of thousands and thousands of young uh, Native students who were sent off to these boarding schools. For Jim Thorpe himself, the experience was somewhat contradictory because when you think about it, none of us would have ever heard of Jim Thorpe had it not been for the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. That's where he rose to fame as a track star, as a football player, as a gold medalist. Um, but it's also where he suffered. You know, the first three years that he was at that school, he wasn't really even at the school. He was part of what they called the outing system, where these young students were sent off to work essentially as kind of indentured servants for local farmers in Pennsylvania and Delaware and New Jersey um, at minimum pay, which went back to the school. The government at the same time was getting paid for having those students. So it was a little bit of a scam in a way, mm -hmm. double billing, if you might say. Anyway, Jim Thorpe didn't like that. He ran away from, from two of those farms because they mistreated him. Um, so I think that was another traumatic experience uh, early in that period. When he came back to the school in 1907, and really that's when his rise as an athlete started, he was um, despondent that they didn't put him in the grade that he thought he deserved to be in. Mm -hmm. So again, he, was, he, he would say that in some sense, his athletic career was motivated by feeling that he'd been mistreated. Mm -hmm. um, but again, it, it, was, it was contradictory. We wouldn't know about Jim Thorpe if not for that school, but the school, and there were many students who went through those schools who went on to become leaders in the indigenous uh, movement, you know, lawyers and doctors at the same time that the schools were trying to sort of pigeonhole them into being more white and to lose their cultural identity, their religion, their, their um, language, their culture, um, you know, shear their hair and dress them in the military uniforms of the U.S. Cavalry. All of that was misguided, but it, it had, so it had many uh, difficult effects and some better effects, I would say. I thought the book did a great job of introducing and and kind of shining light on the complexities of the the boarding mm -hmm. school system. Like you said, if if it hadn't been for that, we wouldn't have known who he was and many others who were. But at the same time, listening to it, it it did just kind of make me twitchy and <laughs> in my skin and trying yeah. to reconcile um, all that came from that. Um, yeah, David, this really spoke to me. Um, you know, I, uh, I'm an indigenous person, as I said a moment ago. Uh, my great-grandmother and her sister were residents at uh, Shilako Indian Agricultural School uh, here in Oklahoma starting in 1917. And in fact, yeah, we actually have... was Jim's first wife. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so yeah. uh, we actually have records of uh, their family, the Childress family, uh, riding to uh -huh. Carlisle. Uh, paying for their fees and making certain that, that the transfers were actually taking place. And I remember my great-grandmother, and I had the privilege of knowing her, telling and recalling stories of her and Ruby when they went to Shilako and what they had oh. to endure as far as the transformation from an indigenous person to the attempt to turn them uh, 
you know, to an Anglo personality. Right. Right. So reading yes. about Jim Thorpe, I mean, it just it paralleled uh, and mirrored exactly what I'd known from my own family. Uh, and what is interesting when you do an even deeper dive into it is what happens after or during the Roosevelt mm-hmm. administration when they actually look at what was going on in boarding schools, looking at the travesty and how indigenous children were being treated. And then after yes. the Roosevelt administration, it gets a little bit better. And you talk to graduates post-Roosevelt, they had some of the most fondest memories uh, of some of these boarding schools because of, of what it meant to them. So it, it was very interesting. It's very complex. Yes, it is complex. And of course, Carlisle, which was the flagship boarding school mm-hmm. for the government, closed in 1918. So they never benefited from that progressive change that the Roosevelt administration brought to some of the other boarding schools. Yeah, sure. So, well, uh, speaking of Carlisle and Jim's prowess on the football field, let's talk about his complicated relationship with the legendary football coach, Pop Warner. Warner at times was a mentor to Jim, but there are other times it seems like he exploited Jim for personal gain. What I really appreciate about their relationship, and maybe you meant this, maybe you didn't mean this, but it for me as an indigenous person, it almost mimicked the relationship between Native Americans and white America. That it was complicated, and at times, you know, there was a parental role. At other times, it seems like there was some exploitation taking place. Uh, I just thought it was a very interesting relationship uh, that you put a spotlight on in the book. Yeah, that's a fascinating analogy, Mitch. Um, I also think there was a bit of codependence there, that they rose together to fame. And so, uh, you know, Pop Warner is an icon in college football and in youth football. I mean, the youth football leagues are mostly the Pop Warner leagues. Um, He was a brilliant football coach, innovative, developed many of the formations that were used in football for generations an early proponent of the forward pass, and also had all these incredible trick plays that I kind of wish he could have today. You know, <laughs> one year he, he he sewed a kangaroo pocket into the uniforms, and they'd have a hidden ball trick where they put the <laughs> ball in the pocket. You know, you could do that then. Another time he had a, a a wide receiver line up near the opposition bench and run behind the bench and come out on the other side out of bounds. <laughs> And catch a pass, you know, that was legal too. It'd be kind of fun. But anyway, so he was a a really innovative, brilliant football coach, but not a, not a particularly good person. And at the moment of crisis of the greatest trauma of Jim's life, when the gold medals were taken away from him, Pop Warner lied about it to save his own reputation. Mm. So in that sense, it is kind of like, uh, you know, you're, you're parallel with the government and, yeah. and the indigenous people sort of, it's it's pretty close to home there. Yeah. I mean, that was another part of the book that really I had forgotten about, but what you just, you did, you articulated it so well, was the brutality of football back then. Oh. I mean, there really was no rules. Was it the, the injury or the report that came out? What was that called? You'll have to remind me where they were like 17 deaths, 17 broken necks, <laughs> yes, you know. Yeah. Well, I compared it to a military after action report. Exactly. That's what, it, that's that's what uh, the word was. Because I, yeah. I, I was like, oh um, my gosh, well, how did football sport survive <laughs> you know it's a collision sport and it's a it's a violent sport today and there you know we have the, the football players are stronger and faster today and the, 
the effects on concussions is something that's becoming more and more prevalent and difficult. Um, But it was more violent then. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Hard to believe, but boy, yes. So, David, I hesitate to ask this because, and you do address this in the book, the negative stereotypes uh, perpetuated against Indigenous peoples where alcohol is concerned. Um, However, it definitely was prevalent in Jim's life. Uh, it felt like yes. the antagonist in his story. So can you speak to that, what role alcohol played in his life and how just how that played out for him? You know, I'm not an expert on alcoholism, but his father was an alcoholic as well. Um, and, you know, was also sold bootleg liquor from the back of a wagon uh, in the Indian Territory of Oklahoma um, when it was illegal. Jim did suffer with alcoholism throughout his life. He many times tried to quit, never fully succeeded. And I think that it haunted him. I mean, I think life is complex. So there are a lot of reasons why he was never able to sustain the sort of job and family life that he wanted and yearned for. And alcohol was one factor in that. Racism was another factor. Luck was another factor. You know, all of that in the mix. But definitely, um, he he did struggle with it throughout his life, and and probably could have had more success if he'd been able to overcome that. Certainly, his baseball career. You know, I mean, he was a good baseball player. He was a great football player and great in track and field. He was good in baseball. And he never got the real chance he needed until 1919 when he was played for the Boston Braves and had a brilliant season. Batted 327, led the league most of the year. And so, and that was his last year in the major leagues. Hmm. And I kept wondering, well, why? You know, why did he never? And I think alcoholism was a major reason for that, 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 you know, it sort of cut short that part of his, of his career. And certainly affected his family life and his, you know, he was married three times. His first two wives divorced him largely because of his drinking problems. Also the fact that he wasn't around as much, but those two might've been related. So I think it definitely um, affected his life throughout. Yeah. Very interesting. It was very interesting part of the book. Um, So let's continue along uh, those lines, but I've got a three-part question for you, uh, David. Um, And we ask this a lot of, of, a lot of our authors, but here's a three-part question. What part of Jim's life inspired you, broke your heart and surprised you the most? So inspired you, broke your heart and surprised you the most. Oh, those are great questions, Mitch. Inspired me. I mean, I, you could say, you know, his his brilliance on the football field um, and, and in Stockholm in the Olympics. But I'm not going to say that. I mean, I, as much as I think he was, you know, I mean, I, I was thrilled by his performances. And I loved especially the football game in November of 1912, when it was the Indians against the Army. Yeah. And the Indians won <laughs> 27 to 6 on a level playing field for the first time. I mean, that had so many resonances beyond just football mm-hmm. um, for that to happen. Um, and then his brilliant performance in, in Stockholm, when actually at one point 
his shoes went missing and yep. he, he won an event wearing misshaped shoes. <laughs> um, you know, who could do that besides Jim Thorpe? But I think I was inspired as much by his perseverance. You know, the fact that for all of the obstacles that got in his way, he kept trying. He never gave up. And I think that, to me, came to sort of emblemize the larger Native American experience in some ways. Mm. Um, and I found that inspirational. The part that broke my heart the most was the final 20 years of his life. You know, as I was writing the book, I'd already reported it. So I knew what was going to happen. But I kept wishing for something better to happen, right? <laughs> yeah. One the Hollywood ending, did you? Yeah. yeah, it doesn't happen. So that that I found heartbreaking. And and the letters that he wrote to his mm-hmm. second wife, um, um, where he's at the end of his athletic career, and he's down in Florida, and he keeps hoping that he'll get this job in real estate or as a athletic promoter. And there's almost a Willie Loman-esque death of a salesman quality to his lament in that period. I found that heartbreaking, mm-hmm. you know, and it was as close as I got to the real inner Jim Thorpe as, as I could, because those were his words. I found some of that very heartbreaking. For the most surprising, I would say, you know, I was I was delightfully surprised that when he was at Carlisle, his favorite teacher was the great American poet, Marianne Moore. Yeah. Um, I didn't know that she taught at, <laughs> at Carlisle, uh-huh. you know, it was before she became famous. Um, and, you know, just to go to her archive in Philadelphia and find all that information about, about the, your experience teaching at Carlisle, mm-hmm. seeing a little postcard that, Jim and his first wife, Iva, had sent to her from Japan when they were on a world tour. That was very moving. Yeah, sure. And I sort of found the little things like that surprising. Yeah. And another thing would be just all of the incredibly famous people that went through his life. <laughs> yes. You know? I mean, he played football against Dwight Eisenhower. Knocked him out of the game. <laughs> Didn't he yeah, knock him out of the game? The game. <laughs> He was on the Olympic team with George S. Patton, right? He was in Hollywood with all the famous actors of the 1930s and 40s. So all of that was kind of fun and surprising. Mitch was quite a bit further ahead of me in the book when I was listening to it. And he he totally spoiler alerted that one for me. He's like, did you know he played against Eisenhower and knocked him out of the game? Eisenhower, you know, he, he conquered he conquered and destroyed the Nazi Germany, but, you Not know, Jim. one wild Indian in Eastern Oklahoma knocked uh, him out of the game. So. He, Eisenhower had a great line about that. He said, you know, I tackled Jim Thorpe once, <laughs> meaning once, <laughs> in the whole game. That's right. Uh, I'm trying to do it. Yeah. Uh, well, David, it's been a delight to visit with you. The book is just outstanding. Uh, I want to remind our readers, you need to buy this book, Path Lit by Lightning, which is actually Jim Thorpe's yes. Sack and Fox name. That is what, right. how it's interpreted. Yep. That's how it's interpreted uh, into English. So it's a wonderful, wonderful book. So, David, thank you so much for being with us. But before we let you go, Missy's got one last question for you. So, David, as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of all of your work and our conversation today, what is your more to tell? Well, I'm a lifelong journalist and writer. So I guess my more to tell would be that 
you know, I grew up in the age before computers, you know, we use typewriters, people don't even know what those are anymore. <laughs> and, um, you know, the whole, my whole uh, profession has changed, it's become more electronic, and it will continue to change, you know, there might be a day when there are no more paper newspapers, and it's all, you know, electronic and so on. And that sort of change is inevitable, you can't change that. But my hope and belief is that the essence of what I do, which is to go out into the world, talk to people, find archival uh, papers, and search for the truth, mm. to try to find the real story, that that will never change. I love that. Well, David Marinus, award-winning reporter, award-winning book author, Thank you so much. It's been a delight, sir. My pleasure to talk to you both. Thanks so much. That was a great conversation, not just with David as an author, but just the subject. I mean, God brought a lot of back, brought a lot of memories back for me, Missy. As your your sports hero, <laughs> yes. Uh, now I know you grew up in Texas, and I mean Davy Crockett and Sam Houston, and I mean the litany of those people who lost the Alamo, and that's another story whatever. for another I'm, day. I'm actually related <laughs> to Davy Crockett. Fun fact. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that is my, true. That is my claim to fame. That is true. The only one. <laughs> yeah. But growing up in Eastern Oklahoma as an indigenous, you know, kiddo. Um, you know, we didn't have a lot of indigenous heroes to look up to. Uh, they just, I mean, they weren't famous, you know. And so the famous ones that were brought to our attention were people like Jim Thorpe. And so from an early age, I knew the story of Jim Thorpe just, uh, you know, very generally. But, yeah. of course, the, the thing I loved most about the story of Jim Thorpe is when he goes and he wins his Olympic medals uh, over in Denmark and he's standing on the podium and the King of Denmark hands him his gold medal. And he says, sir, you are the greatest athlete in the world. And Thorpe responds, thanks King. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do come from a long line of very talented athletes. Well, thank you. That, okay. Before we move on. Yes. Let's practice it. Athlete. Athlete. No, <laughs> no athlete. 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 No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Two syllables. Athlete. Athlete. Okay. But okay. you do come from a long line, including yourself. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, uh, not all of us have a jersey retired in our high school. <laughs> hey, now. Hey, now. I'm no. just saying. <laughs> no. Uh, no, I found the book to be really interesting. I, I generally enjoy biographies um, of any sort, but I feel like the thing that uh, David did very well was kind of the commentary on just the complex nature of kind of looking back on and analyzing the, um, the schools sure. for native children. And I do not want anybody to misunderstand me that they were so ill intentioned and not a good thing at all. But he did bring up the point, you know, of, well, Without that, would would Thorpe have had mm-hmm. the opportunity? The yeah. opportunity that he had, and 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 you you go hindsight twenty twenty. We should celebrate all cultures and embrace cultures, but that is not obviously what was happening at that time mm-hmm. in the United States, and in large part, what still continues not to happen. But um, 
So it's really hard to wrestle with that. Well, as we unpack these stories and as we find out more and more about the boarding schools, as we have in Canada and the you know just atrocious evidence of abuse, um, the death of children up there, the uncovering of these graves, we're finding the same thing here in the United States that took place beginning with the Carlisle Institute there in Pennsylvania and then the entire Carlisle system throughout the United States and then other boarding schools as well. As we uncover that, we are uncovering some very um, evil actions that took place Mm -hmm. during this time. At the same time, what we're also realizing is that there were some actual good opportunities that emerged from that. Any, Any bad situation, good can come from it, and we must always remember that. It's so hard. I don't know. It's just very difficult to think about because obviously for his life, he was given opportunity and it changed the trajectory of his life and his family. But at the end of the day, his life still turned out pretty tragic in the end. Um, I think it mirrors the indigenous struggle within this country that there have been opportunities for advancement. Um, you know, we've read uh, stories in other books about... Let's clarify, advancement in terms of... Social advancement, economic Of how advancement. we define that, yeah, in our capitalistic, I guess. Yeah, and so, so the, you, you take a bad situation, the bad situation being colonialism, uh, Western expansionism, and the genocide of a Native American people. That is about as bad as it gets. Mm-hmm. But are there good things that happen within that evil? And we can't be so jaded that we do not honor those good things that happen. Mm-hmm. And so when I see and hear about the life of Jim Thorpe, I want to celebrate those accomplishments while at the same time understanding the great struggle that Jim endured as an indigenous person, especially beginning with his days at the boarding school. And I think about my own family, and we talked about this a little bit with David and and my great-grandmother and her sister uh, being sent to uh, Shalako uh, Boarding School in northern Oklahoma in 1918. But also think about my, uh, my great-grandmother's uh, cousin, Ernest Childers, who later on went to that same boarding school in the 1930s, and they had begun an ROTC program there. And so he began that program and began to work towards uh, becoming an enlisted uh, officer Mm -hmm. in the Army. Uh, World War II rolls around, and he's sent to Germany, or he's sent to Europe, I should say, and he ends up winning the Congressional Medal of Honor um, and is a hero among my family. Would that have happened if he would not have gone to that school? Probably not. I mean, could have, but most likely not. And so you think, okay, this is a bad situation. It's just really difficult to grapple with, difficult to talk about. Um, Like you said, it it has in many ways changed the trajectory, like we said, of Thorpe's life, but also in the boarding schools, changed the trajectory in many ways of your family. Sure. And, you know, we obviously don't know what would have happened without that, um, but it is what it is. And like you said, we can look at, Okay, well, here are some things that came out of that 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 were good. I guess you know. Mm-hmm. 
to be some things to be to be proud of in your ancestry. Yeah. Well, I just I just think about my own family. In fact, we got a video uh, uh, on the site at cafemedia.org of me talking about my dad and my grandmother and my grandfather. My grandmother being the daughter of my great grandmother, who was at the boarding school. They lived on the south side of Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, which is just a suburb of Tulsa. And they lived on the indigenous side of the tracks, literally. Mm-hmm. And then my grandfather, who was Anglo-American, lived on the north side of the tracks, where all the Anglos lived. And lo and behold, they fell in love and literally had to cross the tracks to begin a relationship. And for me, that was poetic. It was insurmountable in my understanding of where the indigenous struggle is uh, in light of Anglo superiority, that if we're going to be productive, then we've got to cross the tracks, both of us. And we've got to figure out how the other lives, how the other understands life. And that is an important element of living the shalom, living in a peaceful existence. We've got to understand people better. It's not about conformity, like the early days of the boarding schools, but it's about understanding each other, and it's about respecting each other and finding out where we have connection points. And every now and again, they fall in love. (laughs) It tends to happen sometimes. (laughs) I think that's a great way to, to summarize your family's experience, but also the larger um, issue of it's not about conquering and conform, you know, conforming or making people conform, mm-hmm. um, but about listening and embracing and celebrating other peoples and other way of lives and other mm-hmm. cultures. And, 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 I, and I hope that we are we have moved past that conformity. I mean, obviously, there's there's right wing fundamentalism. And there's fundamentalism everywhere on the right and the left. And it's all about conformity. You've you got to say the right things. You've got to do the right things. Mm-hmm. you got to vote the right way. Um, but the reality is that is not the way of God, of Yahweh. The way of Yahweh was never about conformity. It was always about transformation, not setting your identity uh, down, not setting it aside to be somebody you're not. It's about becoming who the divine created you to be. And we talked about this earlier on another pod about uh, Leonardo Three Stars, who talked about and compared uh, a theology of conversion or conformity with the theology of wholeness. The reality is... God wants us to be whole. It's the whole idea of redemption. It's not about conformity. It's not about doing the right, you know, it's not about doing the right formula or how many times you go to church or how much you give or how many hours you volunteer. There's no secret formula to it. It is you being the best Missy and me being the best Mitch that God created us to be. I can let you know it's some things to work on. <laughs> I got a list right here. <laughs> <laughs> and that, my friends, is the Holy Spirit. Two interjects right. right now and again. That's right. <laughs> She's got a little bit of an attitude. <laughs> uh, but uh, at any rate, you know, I, I love this book. You know, I, I saw it uh, at a local bookstore. I bought it. Didn't really think about having David on as a guest. 
But as I started reading it, it was like, yeah, I got to get this uh, guy on the pod. And he was just delightful. And he's just written about some really incredible Amazing people. things, yeah. I know. We need to get some more Yeah, Roberto books. Clemente, Vince Lombardi, yeah. President Obama, Clinton. And th- probably one of the things I would really like to read is the story about his dad. I would too. Yeah. Yeah. I would really like to his read that. His dad was accused of being a communist during the McCarthy uh, era. And how he had to fight that, and so I think that's that sounds like a really great Very story. Interesting, yeah. yeah so we'll so. we'll pick those up and we'll circle back. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I appreciate you. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Well, well I mean, maybe Christmas is around the corner, so I got to say nice things. <laughs> maybe show me as such by you know scraping out your peanut butter balls <laughs> before you put them in the sink. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I mean, scraping peanut butter out of you know day old bowls in the sink. Not super fun. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll get to work on that. I, I got chores to do, folks. Right. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll be back next week. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org.